I'm Kenny, and this is my wife, Crystal. When I first started realizing that uh, God was was true to his word um, was when I was in college. Um, uh, I was homeless for, um, well, I was homeless twice. And uh, the first time I was homeless, it was really rough. It was a really hard time going. Um, I had very, very little uh, to get by. But whenever I did come across any any kind of income, um, I tithed it. And though I was hungry very very many of the times, um, I never had to resort to um, ditch, uh, trash digging or anything. Um, there were times where I was close, um, but the closest I came, there were times where um, because I was homeless, I'd wear the same clothes. Uh, I would find money in my pocket just randomly um, and it would usually be just enough to get me um, get me food. Um, obviously most recently in light of um, Kenny, Kenny and I went to, on the Kenya mission trip and uh, we went to the initial meeting. Um, I'm a teacher and a lot of the mission trips occur during the school year and unfortunately I can't take that time off and so when I saw the announcement that it was going to kind of happen at the end of the school year I was like I'm going Um, and so we went to the meeting um, the initial meeting just to get information about what it is when it is obviously the cost and um, there's no way we could have afforded it and um I saw Pastor Brian was in the meeting, and later he, um, him and actually Diane, both separately had asked, are you guys going to go to Kenya? And I blatantly looked at them and said, I don't think we can afford it. And I know Diane said, Crystal, the Lord will provide. So we, we prayed about it. Right. We're like, well, let's pray about it. Let's see. Let's see what God does. And so we prayed and fervently and I would say about a week, week and a half went by and we checked the mail and uh, we got a personal letter um, from actually Pastor Brian and Diane and we opened it and they said go. <laughs> and in the memo line, it said Kenya. But um, I also recommend that if people are hesitant to maybe financially give, start with like serving right? That's a great way to give, um, make meals for people. There's so many people that are in tough times or they're moving or they're having babies or surgeries. Even just making a meal for someone is a way uh, to give. If finances are an issue, give it to God and he'll make it abundant. Amazing stewardship stories that are part of our church family. You might even be sitting next to one uh, there today. Just wanted to be aware of that. want to uh, just uh, greet those that are joining us over at our Westside campus. So glad that you're with us today, as well as those that are joining us online. We appreciate that. And hopefully some good news. We're in the final week of our three-part series on stewardship. And in case you were wondering how I came up with the idea for this Bloomin' series, I got to say that one more time. Uh, the Bloominology, you know, of course, is consistent uh, with biblical imagery. 
A number of different writers would talk about it, but Jesus himself often told stories that included vivid agricultural images and principles. Uh, One, for example, uh, is found in Luke chapter 8. He was talking about a farmer who was planting his fields and his crops. And he said, hey, this is the meaning of that story, this parable that I told. The seed actually represents the word of God. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who in hearing the word retain it and by persevering produce a crop. And given the analogy, there are any number of ways uh, to bloom per se, uh, but for the purpose of this series, we're actually focusing on a specific one. Uh, we're saying bloom here is being really beautiful and doing beautiful things with your God-given financial resources. And so if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we started by talking about how you need to bloom because you were planted. And uh, that, of course, equates to having purpose in life. You're here, not by chance, but on purpose, which means God has a purpose for you and for the resources that he's given you. And then last week, we looked at the meaning of bloom, that we needed to bloom how we were planted, which actually kind of equates to design. God created us a specific way. And you were designed for a relationship with God and for eternity. And so your stewardship of your resources ought to reflect that. Well, today is one of my favorite. We're going to talk about the need to bloom where you are planted, which actually equates to the whole idea of contentment. And I'm so glad uh, that Kathleen touched on that. And since it's it's uh, really congruent with the biblical imagery, obviously bl- the bloom analogy is consistent with biology. Because when you study plants, one of the things you learn about plants real quickly is plants bloom where they are planted. And I've got some amazing examples of how tenacious plants can be at actually blooming where they're planted. Like this first picture uh, where a plant showed up. I don't think it was expected to grow there but it found a way on the seat of the car. Uh, the second one, this clover, founds a place and a way to grow in the, in the handle of a, of a shuttle, a shovel. And then one of my favorite uh, is this dandelion that found a way to break through the asphalt. I don't know about you, but whenever I have a wrestling match with the asphalt, I usually lose. Uh, but the dandelion won in that case and bloomed there. And then I don't know if you've been up hiking in the mountains. I hope you do get able to get up there. Uh, one of the things I always come across is a tree that's growing right out of the middle of a boulder, blooming where it was planted. And then, of course, I've got to end with one blooming flower where it got planted in a sidewalk. And just as it is for those plants, sometimes blooming where we're, we're planted in life uh, can be outside of our control. But that doesn't have to hinder our response at all. Now, let's be honest on the front side. There are many factors concerning life uh, about us that are predetermined. We don't get to choose what they are. Uh, A few of those would be, for example, when and where and to whom you were born. Uh, None of us here got to choose our parents, who they were, or the year we were born, or where we were born. But haven't we all seen people who were maybe born into abject poverty, into miserable circumstances, during very difficult uh, situations, possibly to even dysfunctional parents who have made something beautiful with their lives. Uh, Then, of course, there's uh, the thing that we don't get to pick, and that's our mental capacity uh, and our giftedness. 
We all start, let's be honest, with varying levels of intelligence or IQ, and all of us here have different gifts and talents and abilities. But once again, it's not what we've been given that makes the difference or what capacity we have. It's what we do with those gifts that make the difference. And then the last one I would just call is our fixed aspects of our personality and temperament. Now, all of us can make some adjustments, but there are some things that are fixed. And I'm kind of interested today because so far in the other two services, uh, it's been very clear. It should be about half and half. And so I'm just curious today, how many extroverts are with us here today? Any extroverts? If you're an extrovert, raise your hand. In fact, you know extroverts, they want to raise their hand because I'm here. I'm here. I want to talk with you today. I hope I get to meet you and get to know you a bit better. And it was about half. Okay, ready? Now it's time for the introverts. Can I get any introvert to even kind of raise their hand a little bit? I think maybe there's a little a few more introverts in this service. You're kind of hoping nobody would point you out, that you wouldn't be noticed. You wouldn't have to interact with too many people. It's just different. We're, we're, we're wired differently. Um, and it all really uh, is demonstrated, I, I think even more so, by those different personality profiles that are available to help us identify how we're, we're wired internally. And I can remember a number of years ago, a lady by the name of Florence Latower came up with four different kind of personality traits. And uh, what she named them were choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, and melancholy. And uh, I, I figured out what they were, but it was so much easier when someone a lot smarter came out with and said, actually, it's a lion, otter, beaver, golden retriever. A lot easier to figure out what those were when you guessed that. And while you and I actually may have no control over how we were wired, we do get to decide what we do with what we've been given. And honestly, that's the thought behind this notion of blooming, being able to bloom where you are planted. And I think you've probably heard this kind of, I think, perspective-adjusting philosophy. You've probably heard it described in a number of different ways because people come up with different ways of saying it. For example, I'll mention one of them, and I bet you can finish most of them. Uh, one example of that would be, hey, when life gives you lemons, make some lemonade. You heard that? Making the best of a bad situation, turning something negative into a, a positive, make something sweet out of something Sour or bitter, try to look on the, the bright side. And you know, people since the beginning of time have been doing that very thing. In fact, when you go back to the Bible, you find example after example of people who chose to bloom where they were planted. It wasn't really where they even wanted to be. Joseph is a great example of that. Just a few months ago, we spent a whole series studying the life of Joseph and how he didn't end up where he wanted to be, but he made the best of it. We called it Detours to Destiny. I don't know how many people shared. That was so helpful of a series. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to go back and take a look. But I think probably one of the most beautiful biblical bloom where you're planted uh, acknowledgments occurred on the night that an angel appeared to a young teenage girl in order to tell her that uh, her life was about to get turned upside down after she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit when she was already engaged to be married. And after hearing this earth-shattering news about where God was about to plant her, This was her amazing response in Luke chapter one, verse 28. She said, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. That's a bloom where you're planted uh, philosophy. Well, there's something that must get us away from that. And so I would ask the question, what is it that actually uproots 
the bloom where you're planted philosophy. I've actually heard it being described as destination disease. And that's uh, where we think, hey, if only I was somewhere else or my circumstances were different, then things would be okay. The only downside of that philosophy is the reality that wherever you go, there you are. And so when you go to that next place, if you're not happy where you are, you may not gonna be happy when you get to that other place. So what is it that tends to uproot the bloom where you're planted philosophy? I bet you've heard of it before. Uh, I think we could call it the myth of the greener grass. And it's an ideology that's based on comparison, kind of what Kathleen talked about a little earlier. And comparison looks at where you are in this moment, uh, which might not be your choice of location right now. And then what happens is when you look around, all you can see is what looks like much greener grass than where you find yourself at the moment. And I think Socrates summed it up very well. He said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. And the myth of the greener grass is the belief that someone else's grass, if it's vibrant and green, it got that way without needing any effort or work or having any challenges or issues. See, the reality is if there's greener grass somewhere else, you know why it's greener? Because it's being watered there, (laughs) because it's being fertilized there. Because whenever someone has what could be considered greener grass, it's no accident, it requires intentionality, and it requires effort. And because we mentioned this myth and that it's based on comparison, we got to remember that comparison is, is such a challenging thing because the truth is uh, it's a danger when we compare because what we're comparing at really is our behind-the-scenes real, our behind-the-scenes life, and we're comparing that to everybody else's highlight reel because that's what they're showing to us. And it's all due and more, I think, probably a little bit to social media Even though that isn't really the cause of our fixation with comparison, it is a major contributor, especially uh, with the addition of two significant buttons that we can push, right? How about that like button and that shares button? And we want to see how many likes we can get. We want to see how many shares we're having. And folks, what we have to be careful of is this. Whenever you compare, it leads to despair because you're never going to have enough. It's never going to be green enough where you are. And uh, not only are you going to despair, but uh, there's a host of other destructive thoughts and feelings and emotions that it creates like envy and jealousy and depression and insecurity. And whether it's someone else's fame, their finances or their family, whether it's their cars, their careers or their clothes that they wear, might be their homes or the highlights of their life or their health, comparison diminishes contentment. So much so that I think in our generation today, contentment is kind of like a metaphorical unicorn in today's culture. I mean, it's talked about, but it is rarely seen. I mean, today, think about it. When you turn on the TV or you scroll through Instagram, you'll find marketing messages intended to make us believe that we'd be happier if we traveled more, if we dressed better, if we lived in a bigger house, if we, we possessed more popular products. Almost from the time we're born, advertisements and even billboards will try to teach us that worldly wealth and its purchasing power can actually satisfy our deepest longings, secure our future, or save us from crisis. But you know, the truth of the matter is, while money is gratifying, it's never satisfying. It's gratifying, not satisfying. 
And satisfaction is what leads to contentment. And yet for many people, the answer is still more. More money and more of what it can buy. I I can almost guarantee you that that is not the right answer. You know why? Because having more is just a never-ending cycle. You might be happy with something that you wanted when you actually got it, but don't wait too long because that cycle is going to repeat itself all over again. It's one of the reasons why the writer of Ecclesiastes said so well in Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless, which is why all of us here need to be able to recognize contentment isn't having what you want. That's not what contentment is. Contentment is wanting what you actually have. And sadly, it's the lack of contentment that often keeps you from enjoying what you already have. You know, a fascinating study was done a few years ago with Olympic athletes. And it found that statistically speaking, bronze medalists were quantifiably more content than silver medalists. Which doesn't really make sense because the silver medalists actually beat the bronze medalists. Well, what the researchers discovered is that the X factor, the differential, was focus. I mean, think about it. The silver medalists tended to focus on how close they came to winning gold, but failed, but didn't make it. And because they focused on what they didn't win, they weren't very happy about that. On the other hand, the bronze medalists realized how close they were to not winning a medal at all. Or ended up on the medal stand and they said, I made it. I'm good. I got a medal. Well, you know, I got to be honest, this week's been a little bit of an eye opener for me. Especially because you got to know that when I'm writing a message, God often reminds me during that process of message preparation, Brian, you know, you need to be practicing what you preach. And so honestly, a couple of days ago, God really convicted me of how I sometimes tend to focus on what I didn't have. And what I didn't have, I'm 61 years old, what I didn't have is lots of grandkids. Because you know what? I'm a grandfather, and grandkids, they're the bomb. They're the best. Can I get an amen from the grandparents? In fact, after I had grandkids, I thought, I wish I had those first. I probably would have had, I probably would have had more kids if I'd have known how good it was going to be. So you know what? I don't have a lot of grandkids, but you know what? I have four incredible grandkids. And this is the part that's a little bit embarrassing. Because grandkids are so wonderful. I, I've literally told myself, I, I need more. At least more than four. And God clearly pointed out to me, he said, Brian, you know, you're not going to be able to truly enjoy the four you have when you're constantly dissatisfied that they're not enough. Could anybody here today maybe use a little free marriage counseling? Anybody today? I just want to share with you, Gary Smalley, a great Christian author and counselor, a number of years ago, he he estimated that most marriages are about 80% good and 20% bad. Now, some are different than that, but just most, it's average. And he said, often the difference between a happy and an unhappy marriage is whether you focus on the 80% or whether you focus on the 20%. And you know the question that comes up in our minds oftentimes is, would I be happier in a different relationship? And the answer is maybe, and maybe not. But you definitely will be unhappy in the one you have if you spend all day thinking about what might be out there rather than giving all you have what you've got at the moment. 
And so please hear me if you're needing some, if you're having some struggles. You, you better go to counseling and work on that 20%. But you also better remember why you fell in love with that person the first time, that 80%, that's really good. See, contentment is literally, it's a state of being where one feels satisfied and at peace with what they have and who they are. And it's a state of mind that actually really is independent of external circumstances, which always leads then to greater satisfaction and fulfillment. That's why I I truly believe uh, true contentment is kind of like a superpower. It, It gives you some amazing ability. It really is. For example, contentment is the antidote to worry. You know why? Because worry is often based on uncertainty. Am I going to get this? Am I going to have it? Is it really going to happen? Is it not going to happen? But since contentment is based on what you already have and you already possess and are grateful for, it tends to kind of dilute or dissolve any anxiety that you might experience. Secondly, you got to know a contented person really can hardly be ever be manipulated. And that's because you're no longer dependent on receiving or possessing anything in order to feel satisfied. And so, I mean, no amount of convincing will be able to change that. And finally, nothing can take away a contented person's sense of fulfillment. I mean, contentment actually allows you to be happy now, not later in some distant future. And it gives you the space to be able to now realize your potential and to be able to contribute, which in turn helps you create a more fulfilling life. Because instead of spending time chasing more stuff, you can now spend time realizing your potential and contributing. I mean, contentment really is powerful because it gives you the space that you need to actually find fulfillment. Now, I'm pretty sure that the majority of us here would probably appreciate that kind of power in our lives. Uh, It's the sense that nothing can take away our sense of well-being. But the problem is, again, today that we, we go about trying to get that the wrong way. We're led to believe that if we attain a certain salary, that if we make the right real estate investments, or if we amass a certain amount of money or wealth, then we'll have this power. But we never do. Because it's almost impossible to have enough in this world to truly feel secure. That's one of the reasons why I love what the Apostle Paul pointed out in his letter to his young apprentice, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this very important thing. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's where it really is. And he says, you know, when you get off on that and you kind of get mixed up, it doesn't go well. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, the only way that you can have the superpower of contentment is if it isn't tied to the rise and fall of your circumstances. It has to be more resilient than our bank accounts, our mutual funds, our job titles or benefit packages, or even our social media follower count. I think the psalmist got it right when he said to God in Psalm 73, verse 25, he says, God, whom whom have I in heaven but you? And you know, earth has nothing I desire besides you. Now, please don't misunderstand. Cultivating contentment, it doesn't mean that you don't want to learn, you don't want to grow, you don't want to improve, you don't want to develop. So let's be clear about what contentment is not. Folks, contentment is not being complacent. It's not being unmotivated. It's not being lazy. And folks, that's because the proper amount of holy discontent is found in every follower of Christ. So one thing to remember 
Being content doesn't just mean staying where you are. In fact, it's the opposite. It actually means that you're going to choose to bloom where you're planted and become God's best version of you where you are at the moment with what you have right now. See, contentment is actually the decision to bloom where you are planted. And it's the realization that while you might not have everything you want, you do have everything you need. I want to give you one more example of this. In the Gospel of John, we're introduced to an individual who is literally called to prepare the way for Jesus when it was time for his earthly ministry to begin. His name is John. We've identified him often as John the Baptist. And here's a few of the things that we actually know about John. His birth was literally foretold, and very specific instructions were given concerning his life. We know he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born, which was actually demonstrated while he was still in his womb and his his mother Elizabeth got close to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he leapt in his mother's womb because he was near Jesus. He exhibited some very uncommon lifestyle habits, like he wore some really strange clothing and actually ate bugs for his diet. And he began preaching before Christ went public, having been given the task, the responsibility of preparing the way for the Lord. Of course, he was highly thought of by Jesus, who actually requested to be baptized by him. And yet, in spite of the juxtaposition of his life, John was content to bloom where he had been planted. And we know that because in John chapter 3, some of his disciples came. He had started preaching, had some great success. And some of his disciples came to him and they, they, they said to John, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. And folks, that's when John made one of the most powerful bloom where you're planted statements recorded in the Bible. In verse 27, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What I've gotten from God, that's just what I'm gonna take. Then he goes on in verses 28, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That's my joy and it's now complete. And then he has one more statement. He says, you know what? He, he must become greater. I'm supposed to become less. In other words, John was just saying, you know what? I'm content to bloom where I'm planted because I'm giving God my best right now and I'm content to trust him with the results. Besides, he's actually the one who deserves to be in the limelight, in the spotlight. Now, all of that to say, folks, that when it comes to stewardship, that's why we're bringing it up here, your, your level of contentment is gonna greatly impact the way that you give, even your ability to give. And you gotta know this, a lack of contentment is only gonna impede your godly stewardship of your God-given financial resources. And it's happening all the time in our culture today. Uh, 10 years ago, a study was done of 4,000 churches across this country. And it provided really an unprecedented look uh, into the American church. Well, what they found there was that 45% of the average American churchgoers, almost half, who who participated regularly in church, 45% gave less than $200 a year towards the cause. 
And literally what that means is that that group accounted for only one to one and a half percent of the average American church income. I think, imagine what could happen if their giving increased even just a little bit. Kingdom impact could be multiplied. And they might be saying, well, I don't have that much. God doesn't care how much you have. He cares what you're doing with what he's given you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes there and says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. And folks, this is where tithing really comes into play. Tithing allows everybody to get involved in giving. And it demonstrates that we actually trust God, that he's the resource, the provision of our worldly riches. Now, the problem is, for most people, that instead of giving God their first fruits, many believers give God their leftovers, They pay all their bills, and then if there's anything left over, they give God a portion of the leftovers. And I know sometimes people think, well, if I had more, I'd give more. People would say, well, yeah, if I I was making a million dollars a year, I'd be glad to give God 10% of that. But the truth is, folks, today, if you're not tithing on the 30,000, the 60,000, the 90,000 or more a year, why would God ever think he could trust you with a million dollars. And yet again, ultimately, it's not about tithing. It's about trusting God enough to make the decision to bloom where you're planted at this moment. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it says, now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove what? Faithful, where they are. And the real issue is not whether God is trustworthy, it's whether or not we're trustworthy in managing God's money. And would you like God to trust you with more than you're managing right now? We probably all would, but you can't just say it, or you just can't think it, you actually have to demonstrate it with where you are right now. Because here's what it says in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little well, they can also be trusted with much. If you're dishonest with a little, you'll be dishonest with much. And so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, what you have, who will trust you with true riches? And that's why I just want to offer it one more time. If it sounds like something you'd like to do, but it feels a little bit too scary, if stepping in to take that tithe at the place that you're at is a little bit too hard, we'll offer that 90-day 90, 90 tithing challenge, if you'll tithe for 90 days and at the end of those 90 days, you're like, whoa, my finances are a mess, you can come ask and we'll, we'll give the money back if you need that type of, of, of really a, a kind of a safety now. Because folks, it's what we, what we have that God wants to see us faithful with and being faithful with what you have. In other words, blooming where God has you planted in this moment is what determines if God can trust you with more. And some people never get that figured out. Let's pray. Father, it can be a challenge to address this topic of money. It's so personal, it's so private, it's so revealing about really where our hearts are at. That's why I thank you for Jesus and the disciples being so willing to bring it up, to talk about it, to mention the importance of it. God, help us in the room to recognize that it's not about giving to a church. It's about giving to you. 
It's about acknowledging that you are the owner of everything, that we're just stewards, that we're made, Father, for eternity. And we need to make sure we invest there. I'm I'm so thankful, Father, for the faithful people who steward all of their resources under your authority and ownership. I, I pray that all of us would be able to get there in the power and the strength of your spirit with gratitude for all that you've done. And I ask and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.